Matthew chapter 13, let's begin in verse 53. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. 
And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the man, the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Let's pray together. Father, you've truly already worked among us in our midst, Lord. We recognize that. We ask that you would further work in us by your word, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, right now. We, we ask that you do a supernatural work in us and make us more like Jesus today because of these verses, Lord. Thank you that your Holy Spirit can speak to us individually so well through your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you desire to change us more than we want to be changed. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today marks the halfway point of the book, and we're going to see the end of chapter 13 here as we begin, and it's kind of a companion, the end of chapter 13 is, to kind of the end of chapter 12. You remember when the end of chapter 12, Jesus' mother and brothers were there wanting to have access to him, the crowd assuming that that would have been what Jesus would have wanted as well. But instead he said, who are my mothers and brothers but these before me? And he's talking about his disciples, those who obey the word of God. And so chapter, the end of chapter 13 kind of is a companion here because Jesus goes to his hometown of, of Nazareth there. And so we're going to see that. We're also going to see in chapter 14 as we continue uh, all the way through it, and we will spend most of our time looking at this, we will see the turning point of the Lord Jesus' ministry when he fed the 5,000. And, and we'll be looking at more than that. We'll be looking at uh, this you know, final rejection of, of Nazareth, of him. We'll be looking at Peter walking on the water. We'll be looking at these men in this city, uh, Gennesaret, that are seeking healing from Jesus. But really the main event is in chapter 14 with the feeding of the 5,000. So verse 53 of chapter 13, we're told, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. Now last week we went through the parables of the kingdom. There were seven parables that we saw and four were directed to the, the multitudes, three were directed to the disciples. And so he moves on from there. Where is the there about which it speaks there at the end of verse 53? And it's Capernaum. That's where we, we found ourselves last time. And that's where he was when he finished with these parables. And so we're told in verse 54, and when he had come to his own country, <clears throat> that is Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. 
This is the last recorded instance of Jesus being in Nazareth. He already had been there. He'd already gone to the synagogue and he'd already read from Isaiah. They'd already tried to run him off a cliff, as we're told in Mark, and we'll get there when we see that gospel. But it kind of itemizes for the first time his family. I mean, that he had four brothers. He names the brothers there. We see in verse 55, James, which is the person that wrote the, the book of James. And Judas there is Jude, when we think about the, the book of Jude. <clears throat> so he has these brothers. We're also told in verse 56 that he has sisters. And that's plural. So he has at least two sisters. He could add many more sisters. Boys really have a lot of fun with sisters. I know I did. I'm surprised my two sisters... Two real sisters speak to me <laughs> to this day because of how I torture them. Praise the Lord that they're saved, and they prayed for me for 10 years to get saved. Um, at the age of 10, that's when they started. Um, it's pretty pretty, pretty pathetic. Um, but here we have a family of children of at least seven. Now, the Catholic Church, because of their tradition, they have to make these uh, siblings cousins because of their tradition that... Mary was a perpetual virgin and never knew Joseph in a physical way. And here it's clear that brothers, sisters, um, that he had that he had siblings. Now, they were half brothers and sisters, of course, uh, but they were there and they were, um, I mean, they were referring to them in this these verses here. And it says, notice in verse 57, that they were offended at him. That's the word scandal on. It's the word from which we get our word scandal. It was a stumbling block because scandals are supposed to stumble us, but they really don't anymore. It's because we're so desensitized to scandals. It's almost like we feed on them. We're not stumbled at all, but they were stumbled by him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, in his own house. And so this was typical. This was typical that the prophets were not welcome in their own cities and homes and so forth. And, and, that, and we've gone over this already as we've gone through the book of Matthew, that that can be the case for us. And it shouldn't stumble us when our family and our relatives, they have a hard time receiving from us related to Jesus being the Messiah, their need for salvation. They're just so familiar with us. They know our shortcomings. They know our faults, even though this, they didn't have any faults to identify with Jesus over, but they still had a problem receiving. And they, and they say, you know, where did he get all these things? Because we know his parents. We knew his parents. We know his family history. Where does he get all And don't people ask that of us as we step out into ministry and we step out to serve and we step out to learn about God and we learn of his wisdom and we learn of all these incredible things. That's why I tell you all the time, it's not original. Every time I say something good and people go, ooh, I'm quick to say it's not original. I know who I am apart from Christ. We don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to say. There's no wisdom in me. And so people say the same thing about us. Where do they get these things? Where do they get this wisdom? You ever share with someone and you're preaching the gospel to them and you're explaining things and how the nature of man works and where this world is leading and you have this wisdom from God and no man can serve two masters and what does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul and you're going, you know, quoting Jesus and so forth and then they're just in shock. They're just, where do you get this stuff? I get it from Jesus because I have no wisdom. Talking to a former breakdancer here. No wisdom. No wisdom here. 
No wisdom at all. So they're stumbled. And so if you're here today and you're discouraged that your family does not receive from you related to the gospel, you're not alone. The Lord Jesus experienced the same thing, but yet he didn't stop trying to reach out to his family, and neither should we. We should be consistent. We should be prayerful. We don't give up on people because God doesn't give up on people. And we were, as I mentioned before, when we looked at John or uh, Matthew chapter 12, when his mothers and when his mother and brothers came to see him, that I noted that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit specifically makes mention of the fact that his mother and his brothers were there on the day of Pentecost. They, they were believers. They came to know the Lord in the end. And so can our family as well. It's interesting that they're at the day of Pentecost there, and a lot of the tradition is that Mary ascended with Jesus. It's kind of hard to do that when you're at the day of Pentecost there. So there's a problem with that. So here we see that his family, his, his, his people from the city, from Nazareth, they don't understand why he's able to do what he's doing and so forth. And so, um, you know, he's just doing what he's supposed to do. He's doing what his, he's doing what he normally does. He's ministering, he's teaching and so forth. And so it says in verse 58, now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He could have done mighty works there, but he chose not to because of their unbelief. Sometimes people ask, how can we don't see more miracles today, especially in our country. And I think a lot of it has to do with our unbelief because we're smarter than that. We're smarter and know that God, you know, we don't need God. We have medicine and we have science and all those things. And so God looks at that and, and I, I believe it, you, you know, that's a represented representation of how he works or how he doesn't work in any given city or heart or land or country or whatever. So the interesting thing is, is that people needed mighty works to be done in Nazareth. They weren't any less needy than any other city. But that's because they didn't believe God chose to not do any works among them. Now, in chapter 14, as we start there, we're going to see kind of this martyrdom and this treatment of John the Baptist. And Matthew reviews the background of it as to why he was put into prison in the first place. So we're told in verse 1, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. In other words, what he was doing, his miracles and so forth, and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now this is an example of John speaking up for truth, being salt and light, to, to represent what God would say in a situation. And, it, and it, he ended up in prison and being martyred as a result of it. Now does that mean that God had you know, basically abandoned John? No, not at all. It's part of the deal. Sometimes we have to speak up and say the truth about a situation tactfully of course appropriately but it's going to we're going to end up suffering as a result of that god does not want us to be stumbled as a result of that and 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 john the baptist as we went over when we, when we went through it he was stumbled and even asked his servants to ask the lord jesus you know are, are you the one or we should be looking for someone else so he spoke up and and verse five says and although he wanted to put him to death he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet 
But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, so her mother put her up to this, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Now, he wasn't too sorry because he went through with it. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. So now remember who John the Baptist is. He's the messenger. He's the forerunner. He's the heralder, the one that goes before a king and announces the king is coming, the king is coming. That's what his ministry was. And whenever you, we, we say this term, don't we? We say, don't shoot the messenger. That's where this comes from. Not this, talking about these verses, but I'm saying the fact that messengers would go before kings and when an enemy would shoot the messenger that was announcing that the king was coming, that was a reflection on his opinion about the king. You shoot the messenger, you're saying, I'm rejecting that king that sent that messenger. And that's what's happening here. And what it's doing is it's, it's also giving us a foretaste of what they're going to do to the Lord Jesus. They're going to, they're going to take his life as well. I mean, in the, in, from man's perspective, they're going to take his life. From God's perspective, he offered it, it up. But John being put into prison, as I've mentioned, was a marker in all four gospels. When, when, and we're going to look at it in a second. Well, let's just turn there. Let's just turn over to Matthew chapter four. Hold our place in Matthew 14. And let's turn over to Matthew 4. And it's easy to remember because verse 12 in, in, our, in our chapter is talking about them burying John the Baptist's body. But chapter 4, verse 12, if you invert it, is talking about when John was put into prison in the first place. Verse 12 of Matthew 4 says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. So we're going to be looking at, and we've been looking at, I mean, this ministry that he had, that he began, and he ministered in Galilee, and we've talked about this this, uh, great ministry that Jesus had in the Galilee section of of Israel. And we are going to be looking at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in a moment. And that miracle is listed in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels before, you know, apart from the resurrection and so forth. I'm talking about before the cross. It's the only Gospel that's in all four Gospel accounts. The Holy Spirit wanted to make sure no matter what Gospel someone was able to have, if they couldn't have all four Gospels, they were going to see the feeding of the 5,000. And and so this, remember I told you the outline of how all the Gospels are laid out. When, when John the Baptist is put into prison, Jesus starts his Galilean ministry where it begins the year of popularity. And then once he feeds the 5,000 and they start reacting in an inappropriate way, then the whole year of opposition really begins. And it's basically a year left in his uh, public ministry. Now, so I want to look at John's gospel. Turn over to there quickly. And I just want to look at a few details 
and we'll get there when we get to John's gospel, and we'll look at it again in more depth. But I want us to cover just a few aspects of John's gospel related to feeding of the 5,000. So turn over to John chapter 6. As I did mention in the introduction to the gospel of Matthew, John's gospel came at least 30 years later. And 90% of the content in the Gospel of John is unique to John. 90% of the content in the Gospel of John you can't find anywhere else except the Gospel of John. John, by the Holy Spirit, wanted to fill in some details on some things and mainly cover the last week. Half of the book of John is the last week of, his, of the Lord Jesus' life. But to this, uh, this account of the feeding of the 5,000, he includes some details that none of the other Gospel writers Uh, reveal and it's purposeful because it explains a lot of things okay john chapter 6 i want us to look at verse 4 let's start at verse 4 i'm just going to look at a few verses here now the passover a feast of the jews was near and that's important because we already told in matthew that there was green grass right so this is in the spring and we're told here why it's green because it's in that part of time where they celebrated the passover now when was jesus crucified what Jewish holiday was, was near the time he was crucified? The Passover. But this is a year exactly before that would happen. So this helps us know that we're at a year before the cross. So we know exactly where we're at in terms of this final year, this year of opposition, which changes things in terms of how we receive his teaching and his miracles because it's all in the context of opposition. And so much of our, and we're going to get into this, but so much of fruitful ministry happens when we're going through difficult times and we're being going against difficult situations and we're struggling. And sometimes we can think that God would never want us to serve or to do what he wants us to do in the context of difficulty. And it's quite the opposite. Jesus modeled that for us in this last year of his public ministry. He's ministering in the context of great difficulty and opposition. And so what he's going to say is going to be a little bit different than what he's been saying. He's still going to perform miracles, but he's going to mainly be focusing on training the 12. And he's going to travel. He's going to um, be among people, but he's going to be more isolated because he's going to be focusing on the disciples more and more. He's going to go away from the crowds. He's going to be more alone, and he's, but he's still going to minister. He's still going to heal. He's still going to be there for people and be the Messiah. Now, I want you to see, remember I told you in the very beginning, we're going to see a crisis, and it's in all four Gospels. We're going to see a crisis here, but he's not going to articulate it as, um, as clear anywhere else except in John's Gospel. Look down at verse 15. John chapter 6, verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So Jesus doesn't want anything to do with this by force stuff. He doesn't want anything to do with any of that because the cross is in focus now. From this point on, he's, he focuses to the cross. When he's at Caesarea Philippi, that's when he really, really focuses and makes a beeline to Jerusalem. We will see that. But th- this is the crowd going, nobody could possibly do this. Nobody could multiply food and food like this and, and feed, because they estimate about 10,000 people were there, because 
the Holy Spirit includes it. It's just men that's the 5,000. This doesn't count women and children. It was probably ten to 15,000 people there. They know that he didn't start out with all that food. You'd have to have a big old massive tractor trailer full of food to be able to feed that many people. I mean, you ever been to an event that had 10,000, 15,000 people? Just think of the food it would take. And they then they were fed to, to, they, to the point where they were full and satisfied, and they had food left over. It's so easy to forget just the amazingness of, of this miracle. So they're, they're thinking in their minds, if this man can multiply food, what else can he multiply? Weapons? Swords? There's no, the Roman army cannot even come close to defending against this kind of power. We need to take him and make him, because he's not obviously interested in this. We need to, maybe he's waiting on us to do it. Maybe he's waiting on us to make this happen, to, to carry him away to Jerusalem and, ta- and make him king by force. And this is exactly the opposite of, of what he wanted. The historian Josephus tells us around these feasts, there were three million Jews in Jerusalem. This is our time of the Passover. This is the time where if you were to make someone king by force, you would have the most amount of people on your side to fight against the opposition of the, the Romans. And you know that the, the, the disciples were for this. They're already fighting who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. Oh yeah, let's go. Finally, these people see this, that he should be king, let, you know, and that'll secure our spot. I mean, they're already carnal in that way. But then he starts saying things that are difficult. Then he starts saying things that are hard to receive. Starts talking about sacrifice. Starts talking about taking up our cross and following him. And the crowd started to go back and didn't walk with him anymore. Look at verse 66. John 6, verse 66. Interesting that it's, you know, I'm not getting all weird with numbers and John 666 and all that. It's just interesting, you know. That in John 6, verse 66, we're told this. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Jesus revealed that they, didn't, they weren't following him and, 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 and being interested in him at this point because of who he was. They were interested in what he, he gave them because their bellies were full. He, he, he specifically tells them that. He's honest with them. And as it's been said, God isn't interested in fans. He's interested in followers. Not original. (laughs) So he wants someone that knows this is the Messiah. I don't care if he doesn't do another thing for me. I'm going to follow him because he's worthy to be followed. Not just what he provides. There's a lot of fans. A lot of people that are... I'm down with the Lord. Yeah, I'm down with him. He's good. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I like him. I, I'll, I'll point to him when I make a touchdown. I'll wear a cross that's massive. I won't live for him, but I'll, I'll represent him in, in, in terms of outward things, but I won't live for him. There's plenty of people that are in the same category, and it's in all of our hearts as well. We can be the same way. Maybe you're here today, and you know that you're not following him for the right reasons, just the benefits. Just the, the bennies or the, uh, you know, what you get as a result of being around the things of God's people. And you feel like it's kind of like a, a rabbit's foot, a lucky charm, you know, and, and you just add a little Jesus. That's why these massive, huge 
churches that exist that don't really teach repentance. They don't teach about sin. They don't teach about dying to self. It's all about a man-centered religion in, in the garb of you know, religion and Christianity. They never say the hard, difficult things. It's, it's basically people are interested in just adding a little Jesus to their existing life. But Jesus said, die to yourself. You're dead. You don't have anything in you that's worth redeeming. You don't reform yourself. I'm not interested in reforming you. I'm interested in making dead people alive, not people that are just need a little bit of help. He's not interested in giving us a little help. He wants to completely transform us and make us alive. And so notice he says many of his disciples, they belong to Jesus. Something that belonged to Jesus left. Do you think that he cared? Absolutely he cared. Did he want what's best for them? Yes, he wanted what's best for them. But he wasn't going to beg people to follow him. And he wasn't going to try to manipulate them. Oh, no, please, please, you know, don't go. We, we do that, don't we? we? We beg people. And it's okay to have compassion. It's okay to implore people to, to make the right decision. But there's a point where God honors their will. And we need to honor their will, too. We still pray for them. We still reach out to them. But there's a point at which we have to honor their decision. And so here Jesus is, and people are leaving, and he's, he's okay with that. He wants true followers following him. And so now he's going to have this organized opposition hitting him. At the same time, he is purposely saying things that reveal who's a true disciple and who isn't, and he's still ministering to people in the context of, of, all, of all of that. Now go back to um, Matthew chapter 14. And verse 13 says, when Jesus heard it, talking about John the Baptist dying and so forth, um, being beheaded, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening... His disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And we're told in another gospel that it was a young boy with his lunch there. And that's where they got the loaves and, and the fishes. So here's this great multitude um, that followed him, he likely wanted to be by himself and, and was con- contemplating all about John's life and all of those things. He loved John. But the, 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 in the Galilee area, you can see it's, it's, it's not a massive, massive area. It, you know, 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, that area there. You can see when someone's going across the lake, you can run around and meet them on the other side. So he, he couldn't escape, but he still had a heart of compassion what what did he do he did what jesus always does he has compassion and what did the disciples do they did what they always do they want to send people away (laughs) it's just like how we are apart from the lord we don't want to deal with people's needs we want them to take care of their own needs let them go into the villages and i mean we're talking 10 to fifteen thousand people are just going to go in the villages and 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 they're going to have food all for those people i mean it's completely unrealistic but they wanted to be off the hook And so Jesus says, you give them something to eat. This is a perfect picture of ministry. 
And I want to look at it from the context of the disciples and ministry because Jesus is training them. This is hands-on training. And, and so here Jesus, what does he ask them to do? He asks them to do something impossible. How reasonable is that? Have you ever asked somebody to do something that's impossible? Or have you been asked to do something by someone that's impossible? Kids love to put their parents in that position sometimes. Well, why don't you do this, Dad? How am I going to do that? That's impossible. Yeah, but you're Dad. You're supposed to be able to do this stuff. No, I can't do the impossible. I'm sorry to let you down here. Why don't you do the impossible and show me how? You know. But we, we tend to think that ministry is dependent upon our own resources. That somehow God wants us to use only what we have inside of us as the, as the basis for, for ministry. And we're completely in, wrong. We're, we're completely in error, having, having erroneous thinking when we, when we have that type of attitude. He's purposely putting them in impossible situations so that he can do what only he can do. In verse 18, he said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So how does this work? How does this, this is a perfect picture of ministry, like I said. He asks us to do the impossible. So the way it works is that you, you recognize that you can't do the thing that he wants you to do in yourself. You may think, well, that's kind of basic. Well, sometimes we can think we can do it in ourselves. It's the pride and the, the, the crazy thinking that we can have. So we need to admit to ourselves we can't do it. So we give whatever we have, which is what he's provided. We give it all. We start serving. And we watch what's hap- and we watch what happens after that. And, and it, that's as simple as that. We, we have to step out and not measure our inadequacies related to if we're going to step out. We hear him speak, and we honor him by going and doing the thing. I mean, picture the disciples. They're actually starting to do the thing that's impossible. They're, they're okay, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's, oh, okay, God, you say that you're going to, you can do it. We bring, we brought to you what, what we had, what little we had. Now it's your job to do what only you can do. And, and he did it. And then that's happens for all of it. It's happening right now. Just teaching the word of God. The Holy Spirit speaks to people so many different ways. He takes his word and he takes what people, how people, say things when they teach and so forth, and they get ministered to miraculously quite apart from what any teacher can do. If you ever have the privilege of teaching, you'll understand what I mean. He, he, he does it all the time in our lives where we do something that it's impossible. We have to get used to him putting us in situations that are impossible and being comfortable with that situation. That's the key. And as you see him work and do what only he can, it, you start getting more and more used to him. Not that it, you, you, you lose your awe of it or anything like that, but you start expecting him to, to honor what he says he's going to do. It doesn't come as, as a surprise as much. In the beginning, you're shocked. You're like, wow, he actually did what he said he was going to do. 
But after a while, it get, you expect it more and more. And it doesn't mean that you ever have a need to stop growing or anything. We all grow in this. But we just are dependent upon him to do what only he can do. Prayer is a perfect example of that. Prayer is, you can't, we can't change things by prayer in and of itself without God working on our behalf. That's what makes it so amazing and supernatural because he does honor that. And he does do the impossible as we pray and so forth. All the disciples were called to do, if you really break down what they were doing in this situation, is they were just distributing what, what God wanted them to distribute, and they were cleaning up the mess. <laughs> you know, they were cleaning up after he was done working. And, and, and it's the same for us. He just calls us to distribute what he has made and what he has ordained. And we just distribute it. We pass it along, not understanding how he's doing it, how he's adding to it, how he's blessing it, how he's giving grace in the middle of it. We don't understand any of that. And we get used to just functioning in that realm. And, and, and we just see him work as only he can. But we can forget because later he's going to feed the 4,000, not the same account, and they have the same reaction. It shows us how easy we can forget. You would think after going through this, when he feeds the 4,000, they're like, oh, we've seen this before. Watch what, this is, watch what he's going to do now. And they have a complete opposite reaction. It just shows us how, how bad we are in terms of believing what he can do. It's been said that God calls the equipped, uh, but he doesn't. He equips the called. We're waiting for him. We're thinking he has the wrong person because we're not super equipped. But that's not who he uses. He takes people that are called, and then he equips them. So we can't think that we're disqualified because we don't immediately sense that we're equipped to do something he's called us to do. Most of, a lot of my effort, as a pastor, encouraging people related to ministry is getting their eyes off their own inadequacies. And I have to do it in my own life and get their eyes on how great God is and how big God is and how sufficient God is and getting them to ignore what they cannot do and do not have and focus exclusively on what God has and what God wants to do and can do. And I want to be respectfully blunt with you right now. Is that okay? If you're not being substantially used by the Lord, it's not because he isn't wanting you to be substantially used by the Lord. He wants all of us to be substantially used by him. And he gets to define substantially. And and so he wants every single one of you and, and me to be substantially used by him. And it's not limited at all on our inadequacies. That's why he chooses the people that he chooses. He chooses Former break dancers. He chooses, I could go down the list. I'm, I'm, this isn't romper room, but I'm seeing, you know, I'm seeing this person and that person and their background and what they've gone through. And, and, and it's not a pretty picture when you really look at our, our pedigrees. And when he does use someone that the world respects, he has to humble them like Saul of Tarsus and get them to be so humbled that they're not willing, they're not, uh, valuing anything from their past and they're consider their, their, past as as dung like Paul said and then even when he does use them he has to give them a thorn in the flesh that they won't be lifted up in pride by the abundance of their revelations like it was with the apostle Paul so he uses us despite ourselves and so don't let that stop you you know I really felt like the Lord wanted me to encourage you moms here and you uh, grandmothers 
The influence you have is far greater than you could possibly imagine. You know, sometimes people look at pastor's kids and they're like, oh, if they turn out well, because the main times they, they don't, just like any kid, but if they turn out well, like, oh, that's because they're, you know, the pastor is their dad or, or whatever. But look, can I tell you that anything that you see good in my kids is honestly because of my wife and, and her ministry to my kids. It's amazing what she does. It's amazing her patience, her example, and she's with them all the time, way more than she's with me. They're with me. And I'm telling you, the ministry of the mother is the greatest place of influence in this world. I'm not, it's, I know it's not Mother's Day. Every day is Mother's Day to celebrate moms and their influence. We just had Mylin up here as we did that baby dedication, and my heart was on her because of the influence she has with her children. And dads have a great influence too. But don't, if you're here and you're discouraged about your influence and your ministry with your children, the Lord wants you to be encouraged today that your ministry is so powerful. Don't take it for granted. It is a powerful, powerful ministry, and he wants you to know it this morning. Be bold in that, in that sphere of influence. Be bold in that platform that you have to point people to him and to be honest with them and to love them. And to... Mothers are so good at showing unconditional love. You know, they know, the kids know that mom's always going to be there. No matter how bad I am, no matter how much I mess up, my mom will always be there in my corner. Even sometimes when my dad wouldn't be, my mom would be. And it's a beautiful picture of the heart of God. And he just really put it on my heart to share with you. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while they sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, I want to stop there. They're in the middle of the sea. It's between 4 and 6 a.m., middle of this lake. And in this situation, would the disciple, are the disciples safer in the middle of this lake? Or would they be safer back where Jesus was on land? And it's kind of a trick question because anytime you're in God's will, it's the safest place to be. Because they were out in the sea in the first place because Jesus made them. Notice in verse 22, Jesus made his disciples. That's not as strong in the English. In the Greek, it's very strong. They didn't want to go. He had to force them to go. And, and they did not want to get into that boat at all. And he separates the disciples from these people that were wanting to take him by force and make him king. That's not a good influence on disciples and, and so forth. And we can think that because something is ter- terribly wrong because something gets difficult. And so they're in the middle of that lake and it's, there's a storm coming. Could they have been tempted that Jesus you know, abandoned them and, and, and made them get into a boat where he obviously knew that there was going to be a storm and there, I mean, they were seriously afraid. But what was Jesus doing on that mountain? He was praying and I'm sure he was praying for them. And so he, he, they tried to take him by, you know, by force and make him king, but he said some very hard things to weed out the people 
and he sent his disciples away, and he went up to pray and so forth. But then he came to them, and the rest of verse 25 says, he went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. Cheer up, guys. You know, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Peter here, it, he knows Jesus' character. If it is Jesus, Jesus would do something like calling him out on the water because he does put us in impossible situations. So Peter is learning this lesson. He's going to learn it more. And so here he goes and, and he says, command me to, walk, to come out to you on the water. And I'm very tired of people criticizing Peter for getting out of the boat. And there's so many experts that say Peter made a mistake here and he shouldn't have done it and all of that. And, and I, I just think that God would much rather have us get out of the boat and sink than never get out of the boat in the first place. Right? Because he knows that we learn that way. God is not afraid of our mistakes. He's not the one who's afraid of them. We are. Think about that. He's not afraid at all of us making mistakes. You know, we just think of the little toddlers that are learning to walk. Take a step or two, and then boom, on their bottoms, on their padded little diaper bottoms. You know, and then they get up. Now, what if they could talk at that time? I mean, really talk, where you could understand them, and they were coherent. And they said, you know, Daddy, I don't want to take a step because I don't want you to see me fall my little behind and so forth. And what would you say? You'd say, forget about it. Don't worry about that. I don't care if you plop down on your hiney there. Get going, and that's how you're going to learn how to walk. And, and, and so God's the same way with us. He wants us to step out and to do what only he can call us to do. And if we, if we don't do it perfectly, he's okay with that. He does say, you should have trusted me. I mean, you have little faith. That's true. That's good for us to hear. But he doesn't say, well, you, you shouldn't even have tried. He wants us to go out and, and step out in faith in what he calls us to do. Here's a quote. Listen to this. It says, it is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. Teddy Roosevelt said that. And it's true. We would much rather be stepping out and trying to obey what God wants us to do than never get out of the boat. And there are Christians that walk with the Lord for 20, 30, 40 years, and they never get out of the boat. God is calling them to do something impossible. He wants to use them substantially, but they don't want to take a risk of failure as if God cares that they would fail. And he doesn't. Maybe you're here today and you need encouragement that God wants you to step out. You know that you're supposed to step out, but you're afraid of failure. Let me tell you, everyone that's been used by the Lord has learned through multiple failures. I've forgotten about communion. I have said, uh, what did I say a few weeks ago? I said, if, if you eat his flesh or drink his blood or whatever, when I'm talking about communion, I mean, I've made so many mistakes over the 25 years I've walked with the Lord. That's how you learn. 
There's no, you can't, we should not communicate to people that, that you have to be perfect to serve the Lord. And if you make a mistake, then something really, really horrible has happened. God is, is our service to the Lord is just the artwork on the refrigerator. It's just that he just loves his kids and he wants to, he's blessed by any effort of just going the right direction. But fear holds us back. Don't be afraid. Go forward and, and ask him if this is you then bid me to come out of the boat and walk on the water and do the impossible and watch. You'll be walking on the water before. What's interesting about all of this is that notice it says here, verse 30, but when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Now, if you're on the water, how do you begin to sink? You're on the water and then you're in the water completely. Oh, and it's, I mean, if you're standing on water and all of a sudden you're, you have no power to stand on the water anymore, you're underwater just like that. But God let him, as he was doubting, slowly go down to where he had to have time to notice that he was beginning to sink and actually have time to say, Lord, save me. If you're standing on water and all of a sudden you have no way to stand on water, you're not going to have time to notice nor say, Lord, save me. You're going to be in the water. Boom. And so God does that to, to minister to Peter to give him time to cry out to him and so forth. But notice in verse 32, when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Now my question to you is, for you to consider, in verse 33, was their worship of him completely, uh, completely because that the wind ceased? Or is it was Peter's, what Peter did on the water and so forth and how the Lord did all that was that included in the worship I believe it's included I believe it's the whole thing they're seeing that God called Peter out in Christ called him out to walk on the water and helped him and helped him learn that lesson and brought him back in the boat and the wind ceased and they worshiped him for the whole entire picture and I know that Peter would never forget this at one point, the Lord Jesus will say, and we'll see it in Luke 22, when he said, you know, the Satan has asked you, Simon, calls him by his, his real name, Simon, Satan has asked for you, he wants to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. There's going to be many times where Peter fails. That's the great lesson of Peter. That's why we can relate to him so well, because he did fail over and over. He did have self-dependence and so forth, but he learned from it. And in First and Second Peter, you see a very wise old saint that is completely dependent upon God, not impressed with his own ability, not saying, though they all deny you, I will never deny you, and so not saying any of those things. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and our lives. Verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Sounds familiar, touching the hem of his garment. It's very likely that they had heard about that woman that we looked at that had the issue of blood, that said in her heart, if I can only touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. It's like that story went before him, and they knew it. And what's interesting is that still, even though this whole thing has happened with this, this crisis in the, in the ministry and people turning away from him and not being disciples anymore, 
and, and them wanting to take him by force and John the Baptist dying and all these things that were going on in his heart. He's still ministering to people. He's still teaching lessons of faith. He's still healing people. And that just makes us want to worship him even more. And as I said, there are so many times in our lives where we're going through the hardest times, the darkest times. We're really struggling, and we assume that he does not want to do ministry through our lives at that time because of what we're dealing with, and those are the times that we're the most useful in his hands. Those are the times we're the most dependent upon him. Those are the times where people see the character and the power and the grace and the love of Christ come out of our lives, and they know that it can't be us because of what we're going through. So if you're struggling today, look for ministry opportunities. Look around. When you struggle, when you're getting hit left and right, you don't know what's coming next, ministry is right there. There's someone that needs the Lord right in your life and, and some, some example that you need to be in someone's life right in the middle of it. There's so many examples of that in Scripture. Don't be stumbled by the difficult times. The ministry, bring what you have to Christ like the loaves and the, fin- the, loaves and the fishes and watch him multiply and, and just pass distribute just distribute and there'll be stuff left over for you like those baskets he loves to do that 12 disciples 12 baskets left over he's he's providing through their sacrifice of just distributing it's really not much of a sacrifice but he's providing for them it's a beautiful picture so much here let's pray together thank you lord for your great heart thank you for encouraging your people and speaking to them Thank you for encouraging us and how even in the context of difficulty, Lord, you want to greatly use us. Thank you for all the moms here and the grandmothers here. Encourage them in their ministries. Thank you for all these lessons. And as we continue in an attitude of prayer, I just want to ask if there's anyone here you've never trusted in Christ to be your Savior, to ask the forgiveness of your sins. You may believe in God, You may be religious, you may go to church, you may agree that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead, but you have never repented, which means to turn, never made that U-turn the road of life and trusted in what he did for you on the cross to pay your way to heaven. And you are finally understanding that for the first time this morning. And you know you need that. You know you need your sins forgiven. You know you need the plan that he has for your life to be realized. You know that, that he wants to take your life and make it into what he wants it to be. And you haven't done that. You haven't been living for him. And you know that. And you want to receive him. I want to pray for you. And then I want to lead you in a prayer to ask him to forgive you of your sins and to have a spiritual birth that he talks about. So if that's you today, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anybody here? Anybody here? You don't, you don't know Christ yet. You believe in God. You believe in Jesus in the sense that he existed and he died on the cross. But you know that you're not right with him. You know you haven't asked for forgiveness. You know you're not on your way to heaven or you don't have that confidence. Even though you may have been religious and you've gone to church. If you're here today, I want to pray for you. Just raise your hand high where I can see you and I want to lead you in a prayer. Anybody here? It's okay if there's no one here. I just want to check. Okay, nobody here. Father, we we just pray, Lord, that you would take these verses as we leave here and use them as you see fit. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a faithful Savior. Increasingly make us more like you so we can reflect you in this world and be used by you to bring others to come to know you.
In Jesus' name, amen.